Good morning. It's good to be with you all. It's good to, to be here at Tallawood. Uh, it's, it's now over eight months that me and my family have been here and you guys have loved us well. And as I look out across this room, I see friends and I see future friends. And I, if I don't know you, I want to get to know you. I'm so grateful that we're here today to worship God. I received numerous texts last night, yesterday, this morning of encouragement and prayer and that means something to me that lifts me up, that lifts up, I think, the preparation to put it uh, back into God's hands if I ever try to steal it from him. Uh, I received a text message that, you know, with the title of my sermon, uh, Kingdom Economics, that there better be an economics joke in the sermon. Do you guys want an economics joke? Unfortunately, the supply doesn't meet the demand. Oh, the drummer's gone. Um, I'm also grateful for scripture. I'm grateful that we can look at God's word together this morning. We can open it up. And I hope that this is an encouragement. If you hear nothing else this morning, it's that God has life to speak into you through his holy, holy word, to, to open up his scripture this morning, every morning, any moment you get a chance to look into it. And I promise you that God's glory will shine through it and he'll speak life into you. This morning, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possession. And he called him and said to him, what is that, this that I hear about you? Turn to turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is yours? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You not, cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer as we open up his, his message this morning. God, we stand before you. We surrender our lives to you this morning. We, we give you this, this space, this worship space. We invite you into it, not because we think that you weren't here already, but we invite you and invite ourselves to be aware of your presence. 
here, now, always. God, we pray that you would lift this scripture up, that we would see the truth from it, the truth that you have for us this morning, that you would push down any ego, any desires of my heart to be liked, to be well-received, to be humorous, and the, the primary thing that you would raise is your kingdom message for us. Be with us as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. God is good. All the time. If you're new here, each week Pastor Brooks comes to this pulpit and he starts out his sermon with that call and response that God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Is God good all the time? Did you hear, yes, did you hear the passage from Luke? Did you hear what was read in this parable? It sounds like Jesus is honoring a dishonorable act. Is Jesus, who is God, being good here? St. Augustine remarks in reference to this parable, I cannot believe that this story came from the lips of our Lord. One commentator writes, here's some advice to the preacher, don't preach it. Or you might find yourself like the steward who gets fired at the end of the parable. This is a lot for me to take on as uh, I'm not your normal pastor, that he's away coming from a distance, we'll be back and I'll have to give an account for what I did. Whatever happens, it's nice to know you. <laughs> Was Jesus having an off day with this passage? Maybe he didn't get enough sleep, maybe he ate some bad fish. What is happening in this parable? Or maybe it's Luke's fault. It's Luke's fault when he's doing his work to kind of figure out what to put in the gospel that there was an ancient game of telephone that just failed somewhere down the line, that when this person told the story to this person, to this person, to this person, by the time it got to Luke's ear, it kind of got jumbled up a bit. It kind of got mixed around and the parable kind of broke apart, but he still put it in there. Or maybe there's something good for us in this parable this morning. Maybe there's a message that we can hear about the kingdom of God through this. I also echo what was, was shouted out by a few kids in the room, that I do believe that God is good all the time. I do believe that. Hopefully that, that lessens the tension of the room, that you weren't worried that I didn't actually think that God was good all the time. I do think God is good all the time. I do think that Jesus is God. And that call and response that Dwayne gives us each week was running through my head as I studied, prayed, and thought about this parable. I believe that God is good all the time. I believe that Jesus is good all the time. I believe that this story also is not here by any accident. I'm grateful that Dwayne brings us this foundational truth before he starts every sermon. I think he probably does it for many reasons. I think one reason he gives it to us is that each week he wants to give us a recalibration of, what, of a true north, of, of what it means to follow Christ, is this, this guiding mark that says, God is good all the time, follow that. That the trials that come in your life, that God is ultimately good, God will ultimately win the day, and remember that. We know that, but what happens in this parable? A distant master gets word that his steward is being dishonest with his affairs, so he sends word that he's coming to visit, and there's going to be an audit, and then there's going to be a termination. The manager knows what the books will show. There's no fighting the case. He knows that he's dishonest, and so he begins to scramble. He says, I'm too weak to dig, and I'm too proud to beg, and I'm going to be fired, so I'm going to form some relationships 
that will cover me for the moment that I hit the unemployment line, I'll have a house or houses that will welcome me in. So he calls the the master's debtors before him. He says, how much do you owe my master? And each of these debtors owe several years' salary to the master. He says, take this down, and, and in a moment, in a pinstroke, they take off years of the debt that they owe the master. The master gets into town, and he catches up to speed. What, what has transpired since he gave notice and is there to execute his orders? He catches up to speed, and he praises the dishonest actions of the manager for its cleverness. Jesus then draws a lesson out. He says, use the wealth of this world to gain yourselves friends and eternal dwellings. Following that, Jesus then gives some truth statements on stewardship, which I think are powerful to hear again. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think these truth statements at the end of the parable are something we need to pick up and use to decode the parable above it. It becomes our decoder ring of how we translate the message of what we're actually supposed to hear out of this parable. And I think it's also important for us this morning to remember that verse 14 is present, that the disciples first received the parable, but we hear the Pharisees respond. They love money, so they mock and ridicule Jesus for this story. What Jesus does in this parable is he sets sets these statements that are are calling to change the intrinsic relationship that we have with the riches of this world. This is what he's doing for the disciples, is he's re-steering how they see the possessions and money and wealth. There becomes this great reimagining for the things around the manager. Each day he would wake up and go to work, he would do bookkeeping, he would do uh, credits, and he would talk to debtors, and he would oversee the staff and the servants, all the tasks, and he was in charge of the money. He was in charge of the money of his master's estate. But when the master gives word that he's coming back, I think the world around him took a new shape. Those things that he picked, picked up with and interacted with every day takes on a new form, takes on a new vision. It becomes something different for him. One of my favorite movie scenes in all, in all movies comes from uh, Hook, 1991 movie about uh, Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, who did what no lost boy was supposed to do. He leaves Neverland and grows up and turns into a really boring adult. And so through some strange happenings, Peter finds himself back in Neverland And he has to rediscover who he was, what he's lost. So he's on the island of lost boys in this scene, and he's had a difficult day of of reorientation, trying to figure out how to fly again, trying to figure out how to be a kid again. And it's just not going well for him, but the day's over and he's invited to the dinner table. A meal that he desperately wants and needs, something that will be normal, something that he can do is eat. 
So these dishes, these covered dishes begin to make their way to the table and he enthusiastically smells them as they go by, just can't wait to get these dishes open. But to his surprise, when the lids are lifted off, he's met with Tupperwares of nothingness, plates of empty and bowls of bareness. But this doesn't seem to be what the lost boys see. The lost boys seem to be ravaging through helping after helping of delicious food, enthusiastic about how they eat. Tinkerbell, from a distance, notices that Peter is not interacting, not eating the meal, and she says to him, you have to use your imagination. Peter decides that he'll play along, and he dips a wooden spoon into an empty bowl and pretends like he's going to fling it to the person across the table from him. But to his surprise, when that spoonful of nothingness arrives at his intended target, it's met with a splatter of psychedelic mashed potatoes. A boy next to him says, you're doing it, Peter. You're using your imagination. You're playing with us. The camera zooms out and and it, it reveals that there is a mighty feast set before Peter. That this feast has been present to Peter this whole time, but it was Peter that was not present to the feast. I think that's what happens to the unjust steward is, is that he's been handed a pink slip and for the first time he looks around and he doesn't see food, but he sees the foolishness of his pursuits. He sees the hollowness of money. He sees that termination has reshaped how he looks at the world around him and he decides to find a future in a new way. He does that by securing friendships and new homes. So after his home is lost, he has a space to land. And what the master in the parable commends is the cleverness of the manager. He does not commend his dishonesty. So you may be asking, how does the manager remove the debts? So there's three primary theories of of what he does. So the first theory is that he's just removing the interest that the master was charging on his debtors. An interest that would have been against Jewish law, so what he was actually doing was making the master more righteous by removing it. The second option is that he's removing his commission, his personal commission from the debts, which isn't really that righteous, but it is somewhat corrective and it's really not all that clever. The third option is that he's still stealing, that he continues to be dishonest, that the dishonest manager is living up to his name. There's little credence that I give to first theory. The amount of interest that the master would have been charging would have matched today's predatory uh, payday loans, would have just been unheard of and unfounded in the ancient world. So I don't think that. The commission needs a lot of extra work and needs a lot of extra words that we have to, to inject into the parable, into the story. Those, those elements just aren't there. I think the simplest interpretation, the best interpretation, is that the dishonest manager is being dishonest, that he's still stealing from the manager. And in doing so, he raises his reputation with the debtors. Simultaneously, he also raises the reputation of the master who looks so generous When the master comes to town, he sees the shrewdness, the cleverness, because he can't undo what he did without taking on great shame or losing face in his community. I'm not asking you this morning to like the dishonest manager. He's not 
a biblical character that we should seek to be. That as I walked through the children's hall this morning, that you hear names like John and Luke and Peter and Paul, Matthew, you hear good biblical names, but I did not hear one child named dishonest manager. You're not going to find them over there. But our society does enjoy shrewdness. We do like it. Me and my wife, uh, Kristen, have, have got caught up way too late to the survivor train. Uh, they're now all on Amazon Prime, and we've been watching them, and you just see shrewd move after shrewd move of people backstabbing, they're outwist, outwitting, outlasting, outplaying each other. That they've been going 40 plus seasons, and again, we just, we just got onto the survivor, don't spoil anything for us, we just got onto the survivor uh, train, and more often than not, the shrewd person wins. The person that lied the best, that backstabbed the less, that made the most strategic moves, that's who gets the money. Not the kind person, not the sweet person, not the friendly person. This is what our society awards and likes. The dishonest manager is someone I don't like, but he's also someone I identify with. I too see myself in my own wickedness, my own righteousness, trying to scramble my way through better positions, to better futures, to better hopes. This parable shows a man that is as wise as a serpent, but he in no way is as innocent as a dove. A difficulty that we have in deciphering this parable is that we have a temptation, like we can with other parables, to turn the master in this story into God. The purpose of the parable is not for us to, to be able to, to break it down, to, to take every word of the parable, to squeeze meaning out of it, because when we do that, uh, more often than not, we run the risk of squeezing something into it just so we can squeeze it right back out and create whatever meaning we want out of a parable. The master in the story is the master in the story. I don't think the master is God. The di- disciples don't think that the master is God. I don't, the disciples don't see that. That's not Jesus' intention in telling the parable intention of parables is to deliver a simple truth to us in narrative form that we couldn't just receive alone. It, it's, a, it's a story that helps blossom the truth that we can receive it. What did Jesus intends for the disciples to hear in the parable is that their relationship with the world and worldly things needs to be reimagined. They need to take account of the things around them in a new vision. They need to see the future set before them through kingdom economics, to be aware that unrighteous things hold little value in the kingdom of God. Maybe already at this point, or maybe right now here at this moment, is when you're beginning to be nervous that I'm going to press the secret button that's under here that alerts the ushers outside to begin moving around the room with offering plates so that you can actually demonstrate that you love God more than you love money. Maybe I pressed it. Maybe Dwayne turns it off when he goes out of town. Maybe it doesn't exist. Don't worry. They're not going to come for your money. But yes, money's part of it. The parable is not here because Jesus has a problem with money or Jesus doesn't have a problem with you having money. Jesus actually doesn't call the money evil. He calls it unrighteous, which those are two different things. Evil means it can only be used for bad purpose. Unrighteous means 
it kind of sits in a, a level of spiritual neutrality that, that it's upon us to determine will we use it for good or will we use it for bad. Unrighteous means that it, the, the currency of today, of this world, will be null and void in the kingdom of tomorrow. Only righteousness gets in the gate. Wealth, money, possession, and many things of this world are spiritually neutral. It's upon us to see how we'll use them. I don't think Jesus has a problem with money. Jesus does not have a problem with money. What Jesus sees in our life is that we're going to have a problem with money. He gives the disciple, disciples this parable not so that they'll flee from money anytime that wealth and money begins to, to make their ways into their presence, but so that they'll hold it in right relationship in the economy of the kingdom, that this is supposed to be used for righteous purposes. He expands it in 10 and 11. One who is faithful in a very little in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to more true riches? Jesus expands the lesson past our pocketbooks. And part of me wants to say, thank God. But part of me also thinks, oh no. He's going to require more. The real treasure that we've been entrusted, that, that, I, that we've been given, that he hints at here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true treasure that we already have received, that we hold in this room, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The real treasure is right before us. And while I do not think that the master in the parable is God, the disciples don't think that the master in the parable is God we do know from other scriptures, from other parts of the Bible, that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus will come back and that we will give an account to him. He will be the judge over us of what we've done with what he's entrusted to us. Unrighteous things, righteous things, true treasures. Yes, our concern needs to be what we've done with our unrighteous wealth, what we've done with money. Have we used it for good or have we used it for evil? But our greater concern needs to be have we let our greatest treasure sit in a space in our life of spiritual neutrality that we don't do anything with it? He wants to see, have we been squandering the gospel message? The gospel message is more than just words. We need to do more than just words with it. Uh, let me show you. You might be willing to say that Jesus is God. The demons knew that. You might be willing to say that Jesus is the key to eternal life. The rich young ruler could clearly see that. Jesus is teacher. Judas was willing to call him that. Jesus was crucified. The Sanhedrin made sure of that. Jesus is king. Pontius Pilate proclaimed that. His tomb is empty, just as the Pharisees expected. The value of the kingdom of God is more than just in our words. We can't just squander the wealth of the good news you might need to ask yourself this morning, have I been sitting on the treasure of the gospel for far too long? Have I not been doing anything with it? In Revelation, we hear that this lukewarm water of not cold, not hot, that it is detestable to God, that this neutrality is detestable and it's spewed out from God's mouth, out of his presence. Maybe like Peter Pan, you need to be awakened to the feast of riches that is at our fingertips, that is, that is available to us to see that we can interact with God, that we can work in his kingdom, that we can play with God and do wondrous and mighty things. Yeah. 
You might need to change your relationship this morning. Here is the truth from Scripture that Jesus is coming back and will give an account to how we've used his riches. And we need to do what the demons can't, what the rich young ruler couldn't afford, what Judas missed, what the Pontius Pilate wouldn't, what the Sanhedrin denied, and what the Pharisees feared. We need to live lives that proclaim that Jesus is our God, that Jesus is our King, that Jesus is our eternal life, that Jesus is our teacher, that he was crucified for our sins. And yes, his tomb is empty, and it still is. Because when he was resurrected, he did not die again, but he ascended to the Father. And he said, I will be back. So when I say that God is good all the time, all the time God is good, here's what I'm saying, that I'm saying that I'm willing to put my trust in him because he is trustworthy, that he is my hope, that he is our joy, that he is our grace, he is our friend, he is our love. He is our life, he is our salvation, he is our Messiah, he is our Christ, he is our resurrection, he is our Savior. I say all of these things, we say all of these things when we say God is good all of the time. We must live lives where the, where the words rest in our bones like the prophet Jeremiah. It becomes a fire within them that must burst out and be shared with the world. I'm going to invite you to the front this morning. If you need to rethink your relationship with our risen Lord, rethink your relationship of how you're interacting with his kingdom. Maybe you've just let your faith be neutral, be, be not for or against anything, it's just kind of stayed silent. That God wants your life to be more than words, but to be action in his kingdom. I invite you to the front. If you wanna join a fellowship that takes the gospel and moves through this world with it, I enjoy invite you to the front to join us, to, to seek out membership with us. Maybe you just need prayer. You need someone to come and to, to sit with you, to be a brother of Christ to you. I, I'm here to do that for you. So I end with this. God is good. All the time. Amen.